yeah, the the so the failure of um, you know, the skepticism is, is a symptom of that as um, uh, the U.S. abandons its own population and people aren't able to go to the doctor because they can't afford it, then, then they have to find answers elsewhere, whether the internet or the folk wisdom of Joe Rogan and deciding to put ivermectin uh, up their ass as a suppository. I mean, this is like what we're down to. I mean, it, it is both funny and hideously sad at the same time, but it, it is explanatory of, of that abandonment of an abandonment. When the US abandoned its own people, the people of the US abandoned the US. And this is what we find in this moment where people are going off in all sorts of different directions. And so in other words, it's not just a Trump thing. It's so, you know, when Biden gets into office, is it better than Trump? Yes, it is. But it's not, they are enabled to engage in revising the notion of public health because as a system, it's been abandoned because the momentum in terms of uh, devolving out of, uh, you know, the empire and you know its a uh, cycle of accumulation is such that the uh, guardrails are structural. They're not about merely persona. Hey everybody, thank you very much for joining me for this episode. I speak with Rob Wallace, agroecologist, economic geographer, and evolutionary epidemiologist at the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps in St. Paul. He's the author of several books, including Big Farms Make Big Flu and the more recently released Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. In this interview, we discuss the complex interplay between the increase of infectious pathogens globally, the role of epidemiology within the neoliberal capitalist project, agribusiness and ecological destruction, and empire at the end of the cycle of accumulation in late-stage capitalism. We reference his large body of work, but in particular two of his most recent Patreon pieces, A Spray of Split Seconds and Vic Berger's American Public Health. Zootonic pathogens spillover into human populations is on the upward trend. The high-speed evisceration of the last remaining intact biodiverse regions on the planet in conjunction with agribusiness's rapacious exploitation of biological life meet the conditions for highly contagious viruses to evolve and leap from animal to human hosts more successfully and frequently. In regards to this epidemiological reality, Rob Wallace is an archetypal Cassandra, having predicted a pandemic emerging under current conditions as only a matter of time. And as we all should well know, at this point, he was right. SARS-CoV-2, or the novel coronavirus, emerged at the very end of 2019 in Wuhan, China, and over the course of almost two years has killed millions of human beings as it continues to mutate and burn its way through the global population, disrupting practically every governing system of human life in the process. We have entered into an age of pandemics. Unless a massive shift occurs in the global economic order, be it systemic collapse or revolution you pick, the idea of a global pandemic only emerging every 100 years or so, and not every one to two decades or less, would be delusional at this point. And so when we think about how to prevent mass death from virulent pathogenic spillover, what works and what doesn't work? As Rob Wallace has sharply critiqued in his extensive work, the efforts to mitigate and contain the spread of SARS-CoV-2 
and its multiple variants has varied widely nation by nation. The United States has been lacking, to say the least. After almost two years of living with this thing, nearly three-quarters of a million people have died from COVID-19. And while it may be easy to blame the negligent response from the Trump administration as the sole factor in this nation's poor response, as Rob Wallace points to emphatically, Joe Biden's administration hasn't fared much better either. Now, before we get into this interview, what must be made clear here is how the multiple layers of public health have been largely abandoned in nation states like the United States. The heavy reliance on vaccines to mitigate the worst of the pandemic is myopic to the point of being profoundly absurd and will likely backfire as the virus works its way around the effectiveness of the vaccines. And the only ones to benefit from this situation are those that hold intellectual property rights over the vaccines, namely pharmaceutical companies. Those in the global south have little to no access to these vaccines due to the profits over people model of intellectual property currently practiced by these corporations within the capitalist epicenters in the global north. And this points to the fact that vaccines are one layer in the multiple layers required to deal with a pandemic of this nature. Rob describes it as the Swiss cheese model of public health. So you think of the multiple layers that are required to deal with a highly infectious virus like SARS-CoV-2, you need multiple tactics in order to address that. And most of those tactics have been largely abandoned within states like the United States. And so by abandoning public health, which is a part of the commons on the national and global scale, many nations like the U.S. are practically guaranteeing this virus will be with us for a very long time. So that basically summarizes much of what we discuss in this interview. And of course, that's rather bleak. The reality that we're living in is rather bleak, and the future is rather bleak. But nonetheless, there are ways out of this. There have always been ways out of this. We have not always had pandemics. There are ways in which we could grow food. There are ways in which we can live on this planet that are not as exploitive of biological life. It means abolishing capitalism, and it means moving beyond global neoliberal capitalism as a model in which to organize economic life. And there are many people, there are many organizations and movements, many of them outside of the global north, that are working towards that future. So we don't have to start from scratch. The models already exist. They've existed for a long time. And this thing that we're experiencing currently is really an exception to the long-standing history of how human beings have lived on this planet. And that is ultimately the final note that we get to with Rob Wallace in this interview. And so I really just have to thank Rob for taking the time to have this great discussion with me. If you'd like to read the two pieces of his that I mentioned, that we mentioned throughout this interview and I mentioned here in this introduction... You can go to his Patreon at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. You can support him for as little as a dollar a month and gain access. I'd also ask that you check out Pandemic Research for the People. You can find that at prepthepeople.net. The Pandemic Research for the People, or PREP, is a crowdfunded effort from the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps aimed at immediately getting research efforts underway to answer questions that will help communities around the world during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So go check out that website. A lot of resources there. 
And if you would like to learn more about my work specifically, you can go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work monetarily, you can do that through two means. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal or Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast or find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. And you can also support my work on a regular basis through Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash lastbornthewilderness. Contribute there for a dollar or more a month and you'll gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. You'll also gain access to some other exclusive content there. And that is it, everybody. Thank you very much for your attention. Without any further delay, here is my interview with Rob Wallace. Rob, uh, thank you for joining me for this episode, for this interview. I've been really looking forward to this. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, when we first started communicating about this, first of all, I was very excited that you got back to me. I've been following your work for some time, and I think especially, it's actually something I wanted to talk about here, especially since uh, COVID, since SARS-CoV-2 hit, almost two years ago. Now we're dealing with this, you know, very long pandemic. Uh, your, your profile has gotten bigger, if you want to say it that way. I imagine you've noticed there's been an uptick of interest in your work, in your books, in having you speak, having you do interviews, and so on. I've just seen that you've gained a lot more attention uh, as a result of that. And I think it's very well deserved. If there's anybody that deserves to be listened to, regarding this pandemic and just the nature of infectious diseases and all the various things that intersect with that. Um, I, I think if there's anybody right now that um, deserves the attention that you've gotten over the past year or year and a half to two years since the pandemic started, it's really you because you have been, and, I, and I've heard this term described or this, this label applied to you quite often, which is that you've been labeled a Cassandra, somebody who was able to see something like COVID, like SARS-CoV-2 emerging before it did. Of course, you didn't know it was going to be that specific virus, but you definitely knew that we were in the age of pandemics, that it was just a matter of time that something like COVID would emerge on the global scale. And I guess on the personal level, I mean, how do you feel about that? I don't know if there's a sense of contradiction there in knowing that you're like vindicated. You're like, I've been talking about this for years. I knew this was going to happen on some level. But also now that it's happened, you're getting the attention that you rightfully deserved. Like, I'm just curious on a personal level, like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's, it's a very mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, clearly, um, you know, to finally get, be able to get word out about what's going on um, or, or what has been going on for several decades or even farther back. Uh, and it's unfortunate to have, uh, you know, in fact, a horror to have it to be vindicated in some sense by a pandemic that's killed millions of people. I don't take any joy in that whatsoever. I mean, it's a, it's a brutal thing. So it is very much an occupational hazard uh, that um, in the course of um, ringing the bell, you know, the town bell that this is ongoing and uh, for it to be actually to, for it to come about in such a way um, it, I should take a step back in that many epidemiologists has been uh, sounding the alarm about this for several decades. 
I think what, if anything, what differentiates uh, my work and that of my colleagues is that we were very uh, explicit about pointing out the um, the role that um, uh, a particular mode mode of social reproduction uh, selected for an increase in these pathogens. And um, and what I mean by that is by capitalism. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I mean a lot more going on than that, but for the most part. Um, Many of the epidemiologists who have been uh, sounding alarm have done so in the framework of protecting a system that selected for these pathogens. And uh, I recently went to see Dune, and there's a um, there's a character in there called the Imperial Ecologist. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah. you know her role, not to give away too much, uh, is is uh, nuanced, but um, you know just the. Uh, uh, just the name Imperial Ecologist was uh, uh, quite something and really hard to um, uh, what the role of many of natural scientists and or even social scientists has, has become in terms of propping up um, Imperial Project. Um, I describe it elsewhere as being the, the guy at the circus who, who follows behind the elephant cleaning up the mess. I mean, you know, poor elephant. I mean, elephant's just doing his yeah. business, but there's an aspect of um, cleaning up a mess rather than uh, actually uh, doing the things necessary to keep this from happening in the first place. I mean, there's a lot of um, flag waving about it, a lot of things about uh, increasing surveillance, um, and uh, but all all to the tune of keeping the system going that is uh, selecting for the emergence of multiple uh, new strains uh, across the world. Mm-hmm. So that's, I would say, the difference. But uh, to address your question more directly in a personal level, most definitely, uh, it's it is very much a uh, mix of emotions. Uh, you know, the terror and horror of it um, as it happens is an element of um, impotence involved. Because uh, at some point, you know, what an epidemiologist can do is is you know blow the whistle and and ring the bell. But in the end, the problem becomes uh, in such a way, you know, when a pandemic emerges, that it's not a matter of solving the problem uh, on a computer or uh, in your in your office or or in your lab. Although, obviously, those who are working on vaccines may feel they can claim that. For the most part, the problem extends out beyond the capacity of science to discharacterize it. So it's just uh, at some point becomes a, a political problem. Meaning, does uh, does a country uh, decide to actually intervene in a way to keep the, the virus from going? Mm-hmm. And so there's this the gap between what any one individual scientist might know or might think or might do, do in their day-to-day work and the actual, uh, what actually happens out in, in, in the real world. Um, so there, there is that mix of, uh, yes, you know, I was able to uh, take about 20 years of research and know exactly what was going to happen as the thing emerged in January 2020. I mean, there's an element of, uh, you know, being able to see in real time what was likely to happen. And I had that first essay in, in January of 2020 that in which I described what will likely happen in the, in the following year and just about nailed every single point of it. So, mm-hmm. but then then you see it happen anyway yeah. and yeah. 5 million killed. And it's, it's, it's a quite uh, a brutal conflict between 
taking pride in your work and also understanding that uh, that is certainly not enough to to uh, keep people from being killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I don't know. I, I just try to imagine because I, I again I don't I don't have obviously any of the experiences that you've had with this. Obviously, I'm here to ask you questions about that. But I try to, as I become aware of someone's work and start to really dig into it before an interview, sometimes what happens, what occurs to me is like, oh, this person is in a very, like, the position they're in, it's hard for me to put wrap my head around what it might actually feel like, like to actually be you in that situation where like, you know what, I saw this fucking coming. And the systems that we are entrenched within are so incapable cognitively. Like, it's almost like it structures individual and collective human beings in, in individuals and on the collective to deal with problems in a very particular way and being unable to anticipate something like a global pandemic seems to be part of that makeup would you say that that's something that you had come across when you were trying to maybe before you know covid even came up as a as a possibility or even as a thing that you're like coming up against certain walls mm-hmm. not only cognitively but also in policy and maybe other realms as well. Like what, what were some of those walls that you may have uh, come up against when you were trying to talk about the danger of uh, upcoming pandemics? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, you suffer the the professional consequences of, of doing that because uh, it's not, you know, one can make a good uh, living. Uh, and I mean, in a professional sense, I'm not talking about money, but although there are many an epidemiologist who runs a lab in a way that they score a considerable amount of money in the millions of research dollars. Um, and, and you can have incredibly bright people in, engage in activity and prosper really well. But the, um, you know, there's a, a third rail in all this, and that is um, who do you serve? And if you serve empire, then, then that um, identity as a research scientist who can uh, ring the town bell and blow the whistle in, in that direction is a perfectly um, protected um, cultural archetype. Um, but if you start speaking about that the problems aren't episodic, that the problem is buried in the structure of the system, then then that's when the filtering process happens. So I was, um, just by background, I was... Um, did some postdoc work in University of California on the, um, what's called a phylogeography of H5N1. That was the first celebrity virus, uh, the avian influenza that emerged in, uh, in southeastern China, 96, 97, and then in, you know continued to be wor- worrisome through 2003, 2005. And so I took some genetic sequences from the, that and was able to make these phylogenetic trees. And because we know the locales of the samples you can basically reconstruct the migratory patterns of this virus just from the genetic sequences. Mm-hmm. And the problem is it doesn't tell you, you know, why this thing happened. So I made the mistake of becoming very curious about something. And it's not always the best uh, step in a, in a scientific career. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but mm-hmm. um, when you're driven by the problem rather than, you know, the uh, contours of what makes a successful career, then, it doesn't always necessarily pan out. Mm-hmm. So I got into the kind of, uh, you know, geography of agriculture in the region, the kind of history of agriculture, the political economy of agribusiness worldwide. And um, I subsequently um, switched over, uh, was hired on a contract basis um, to a department, geography department here in the University of Minnesota. 
And uh, I won't go into all the details about uh, what happened, but uh, subsequently when the swine flu H1N1 emerged in 2009, I spoke up quite explicitly in terms of uh, it being the NAFTA flu, meaning after the North American Free Trade Agreement that allowed companies to basically dump meat on the Mexican market and destroy their domestic hog industry and force them into changing the way they grew hog in a way that allowed uh, swine influences to suddenly become um, much more dynamic in terms of how they evolved. Um, but when you speak about the role that agribusiness has to play in the emergence of a virus like this, and you speak about it in Minnesota, which is in essence a um, agribusiness state, I mean, it's a company town. Mm-hmm. My contract wasn't renewed. I mean, it might have been for other reasons as well, but, you know, the timing is such that, um, you know, I don't think it's coincidental. And, and here in Minnesota, they don't leave a head of a hog at the end of your bed, right? This is not the, the godfather. This is more like, right. uh, yeah. you know, your contract is renewed, you're calls aren't returned. So I ended up having to fall off into being more of an independent scientist and, uh, you know, make a scrape by a living in that direction. I worked at at some point at a a deli for six months. I um, tutored students uh, off campus. I did all sorts of things just to scrape by. I was on food stamps. I was on uh, work fair for a little bit. I, um, uh, you know, so, you know, the price one pays is, is unlike in some countries who jail their scientists or, you know, um, we're not at that point uh, yet, but uh, it's done, the form of labor discipline that's pursued is done in, in terms of uh, access to grants and access to jobs. The filtering process occurs at the hiring level, the filtering process occurs at the grant level. So there's a very uh, assiduously pursued form of uh, disciplining scientists who have the reputation of being able to do what they wish, but that has very much changed. I mean, there's always been an imperial project, but increasingly as universities have, in essence, uh, the states have abandoned those universities in such a way that um, in order to make overhead, a lot of universities are now, are now in essence, doing agribusiness R&D and other such work. Um, the pursuit of science as a uh, form of curiosity is not only been abandoned, but it's now spoken in terms of pejoratives. Like curiosity-based research is not a good thing anymore in these universities. It's spoken ill of. Like you want to be able to bring overhead for your, your university. So what are you doing to do that? And not just grants, but the um, you know funding from uh, the private sector. So that, that's the context in which this is going on. I'm, I'm not, it's not just about, you know, my own experience. I'm certainly not alone in that account. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, we have a new group, uh, Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps, and it's a group of, uh, you know, scientists both on and off campus. So, you know, I mean, we're not like uh, abandoning colleagues who are doing terrific work on, on university campuses. But in essence, it's to fill in kind of the research gap that's developed when, um, um, when universities abandon their their charters as land grant universities and and work for agribusiness and not for local farmers and local community groups, um, that's what we're trying to do. I'm not alone. There are other people who have been uh, thrown out of federal agencies and and not just uh, by Trump, but uh, you know Democratic um, administrations as well, uh, who've been pushed out of universities. And so there is at one and the same time a growing group of 
uh, researchers who can do this work, who want to do this kind of work, who aren't able to, and also the increased need for this work to be done in terms of providing uh, scientific and research support for community groups and everything from climate change to pandemic uh, preparation or response and um, a whole variety of things at where we are at this, you know, historical nexus of all sorts of um, problems, both environmental and, and political. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about this, the way that science, I guess, uh, scientists are in service to uh, empire. And so, I mean, there's a few things that just come up for me. So first, I just want to make a quote. You brought this up in uh, your piece. Uh, You have a Patreon and uh, I I subscribe for like a dollar a month, which is not a lot for what you provide, just so people know that. Um, so there's two pieces more recently that you've published there. The one that I was reading that I'm going to reference here is a spray of split seconds. And there's a quote here from, uh, Xi Jinping is the president of China, the people's Mm -hmm. Republic of China. Uh, the quote that you pull out in that is, uh, science has no borders, but scientists have a motherland. And, you know, you could easily, in, within a U.S. framework, you'd be like, well, that's China. They're, like, very propagandized. That's, like, a dictator, whatever. You know, it's all that. But something that, when everything that you've described is just, like, the same kind of thing happens in the United States, although maybe it's more subtle. Like you said, like, you were talking about getting pushed out of your position at a university. It wasn't like they left, like you said, like, a, the head of a horse or, or a pig or whatever at the end of your bed. This isn't the mafia. But there's like a subtle way in which this sort of institutional filtering happens, right? So certain types of voices or minds are allowed to stay while others are pushed up to the edges or to the side. And um, and I think that one of the things that has come up for the pandemic especially is just that a lot of the, like how the system operates becomes really naked and obvious for many, many people. And I think an example of this is epidemiology of the study of infectious diseases of those that were speaking about it like yourself that were like i i have all this information here and i understand how this actually works and based on how agribusiness works globally we will see something like this emerge and your voice was to a degree suppressed and then it's always after the fact that individuals like yourself are given maybe some room to speak again uh to some degree so i guess i just want to speak to the conditions that gave rise to because it's again like the the indications were there the information was available you know you're an example of this so we knew that something like covid would emerge and to be honest something that i'm hearing more and more now is the future of pandemics is like being thrown around like we're going to have more pandemics like we're just supposed to somehow accept now that not only we have covid which is becoming seemingly endemic we're now going to see other pandemics emerge and that's just kind of the way it is now and something that you seem to provide in your work is like that no it's never had to be that way and, and we d- certainly don't have to take that path forward but we're gonna have to seriously address some systemic issues here so sorry to it's kind of talking a lot here but i just really want to frame that because i think when trump was president it was really easy to frame it on the incompetency of trump in his administration. And now that we have Biden as president, we can see the other side on the other side, but see how Democrats would deal with a situation like this. And really it's not much better. Uh, 
So I guess I would ask you, you know, after Trump left office and we had somebody like Biden, which says that we're going to put science first and that's going to be the thing that we're going to, you know, that, that's going to be the focus of how we're going to deal with this pandemic. In what ways has Biden and that sort of approach really faltered in our ability to really adequately deal with COVID? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the horror of Trump is that, um, you know, we have this great um, hideous incompetence and that led to putting half a million Americans into the ground. And uh, and despite that, he scored uh, more than 70 million votes and the Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that's the extraordinary uh, nexus we find ourselves that, and, and my interpretation of it is that it's not really about persona. It's it's about um, kind of the structural um, context in which the U.S. finds itself. And so, you know, I have talked about this before, but it's it's good always to bring up because I find almost nobody else really is speaking about this one. Mm-hmm. And that post-World War II, the U.S. was kind of at its peak in terms of uh, what's called its cycle of accumulation. And so the world systems theorists talk about it, how capitalism goes through these cycles, usually in a geographically bound way where, you know, early capitalism under the Italian city states. So they do very well and, and then they, they crash out. And um, so on the upside of their cycle of accumulation, they turn um, money into capital. And with that, they build infrastructure, they build an empire, and that might even include public health. Um, it's not just uh, setting up army bases around the world. Uh, the Italian city-states crash out, the Spanish take over, they go through their cycle, then the Dutch, then the Brits, and then the U.S. Coming out of World War II, you know, it's the Pax Americana, we're building empire, we have the Bretton Woods uh, institutions, the intergovernmental agencies, the UN, we... Uh, in essence, we, we, we build more uh, bases around the world. We are, in essence, in the business of running the capitalist system for the rest of the world. And that includes the CDC as well, who has had a long arm in terms of intervening in, in outbreaks around the world to keep them from not only coming to the U.S., but from actually spreading and, and knocking off uh, supply uh, networks and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, that's not a bad thing. We, we want to keep pathogens from, you know, emerging and yeah. killing a billion people. Right. So, but it is wrapped up into that, you know, the Imperial ecology that we talked about Dune style. Right. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, um, but what we find ourselves in the seventies is that the, the neoliberal moment, uh, emerges and, and then in effect, the U S starts to slide on its other side of the cycle of accumulation. And what it's doing is turning capital back into money. And what that means is that the bourgeoisie are cashing out. They are, in essence, taking the public commons and the infrastructure of empire and selling it off so they can accumulate money, whether the Cayman Islands or, as we learned recently, in in South Dakota, right? So, uh, Mm -hmm. um, And what that means is that the very notion of public health got grounded down into bits. So now public health is really... Uh, your personal relationship with your doctor and every billable minute that you're in, in, in his or her office. And even under Obamacare, we have like 28 million Americans who don't have insurance, 44 million more Americans that are underinsured. So that as a, as a, a, a strategy to engage in public health is already going to, to be an utter failure. But public health and all the things that it involves 
you know, post-World War II, the polio vaccine, people lined up, took their shots. And these were uh, vaccines that were live. So some people actually got polio from their, from their vaccinations, but there was a certain discipline, trust. Uh, you know, we can argue whether it's better or worse, but the point is that public health was a fun, fundamental part of the uh, uh, American experience um, that has since, since gone away. And the American people have, for the most part, been abandoned in public health in such a way that it, it's in my view that the vaccine skepticism and anti-vax sentiment is not a pushback against the system. It's a symptom of the system in that, um, in that I, I am getting to Biden. I know this is a, yeah. a long way there, but I'm no, getting No, 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 this is good. This is good. Yeah, yeah the, the, so the failure of... Um, and the skepticism is a symptom of that as um, uh, the U.S. abandons its own population and people aren't able to go to the doctor because they can't afford it. Then, then they have to find answers elsewhere, whether the Internet or the folk wisdom of Joe Rogan and deciding to put uh, ivermectin uh, up their ass as a suppository. I mean, this yeah. is like what we're down to. I mean, it, it is both funny and hideously sad at the same time. Yeah. But it, it is explanatory of, of that abandonment of an abandonment. When the U.S. abandoned its own people, the people of the U.S. abandoned the U.S. And this is what we find in this moment where people are going off in all sorts of different directions. And so, in other words, it's not just a Trump thing. It's so, you know, when Biden gets into office, is it better than Trump? Yes, it is. But it's not. They are enabled to engage in revising the notion of public health because as a system, it's been abandoned because the momentum in terms of uh, devolving out of, uh, you know, the empire and, you know, it's a cycle of accumulation. It's such that the uh, guardrails are structural. They're not about merely persona. So you can have a guy who's, you know, like Biden, who's different from Trump and you know, I, I have a lot of problems with them, and I've written up about. I mean, this was all very clear even before he took office, even before January sixth happened. That mm. um, the Biden plan was basically uh, insufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even with the efforts to you know have these huge COVID bills and such, it's still not enough. It was never enough. They their notions of hiring a hundred thousand contact tracers is laughable. They never they, they never even did that. But if you just run the numbers and I, there was a uh, one of the universities had a calculator for how many online calculator for how many um, given what outbreak you have in your local area, how many contract tracers you would need. And I did that for uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul here. And, and we need six thousand. So if you're offering one hundred thousand for the entire country, that really speaks to the gap between what you need to do to do contact tracing for real and what the Biden administration was promising to do from the start so in other words there's this total gap between what you are uh, the system is wants to do and uh what it promises and what it can can actually follow through with and it it it, it in essence and i think there was some uh it's always some a meme or tweet speaks of, of all these things. We talked about how the U.S. wants to have the virus that is ready to to handle rather than the virus it gets. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID nineteen doesn't cooperate that way. It's mm-hmm. the uh, deadliness of a serious influenza and the um, infectiousness of a of a common cold. 
So even though, you know, one to 2% of people die, that's not a really high number, but, you know, a small proportion of a large number infected that are killed is still a large number of people killed. And even under the vaccine, I think maybe we'll get into that later, but it's not uh, the kind of uh, total vaccine that provides um, sterilizing immunity and only protects you a little bit enough to that you won't get hospitalized for the most part. So in other words, they they stripped out, they abandoned Trump never. In other words, Biden abandoned the very public health program that Trump never started. If, uh, so yeah. they're all the non-pharmaceutical interventions that one might do that other countries did long before a vaccine came and successfully pursued to keep their um, COVID-19 uh, outbreaks in control. And their countries very different from each other. So like New Zealand and China and Vietnam and Iceland and in the early days, Uruguay, they took it seriously. And they followed what's called the Swiss cheese model of interventions, meaning you have an intervention that, and say everyone wears masks, but there's holes in, in that intervention, right? It doesn't, it's not gonna protect everything. But then you put another layer of cheese on there uh, and that has holes too, but the holes are in different spots. So you might do contact tracing. And then the third layer might be, um, you know, isolation and things like that. So and, or the fourth layer, paying people to stay home. So each of those layers has a hole in it. But if you stack them all up, then the holes, uh, the layers cover each other. We never did that. We didn't do any of that. We, we did a few sheltering in place that was very uneven across jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. We didn't pay people to stay home. So um particularly poor and black and brown uh, working class people had to go to, uh, to work. And uh, we put the economy, even during the days of sheltering in place, uh, way ahead of actual public health. So that meant that we didn't do either of those very well. And uh, so Biden, uh, as far as May, 2021, uh, he abandons that entirely because uh, he's gotten word from CDC, the vaccines, are gonna be enough and keep anybody uh, who's been vaccinated from being infected. It's not true, never was. Nobody thought that. Uh, it was basically a desire of the administration to converge on uh, wishful thinking and to get out from underneath the, the, um, the cloud of COVID that it helped actually continue to produce by virtue of not following a, a total public health program other countries took as the obvious thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so Biden finds himself now, uh, we're trapped. We're not, you know, there's still a large population that still doesn't wanna be vaccinated. That is as much a failure of vaccine access uh, as any inability to find time work off from work to go get vaccinated. And it speaks to a kind of cultural and social and political moment that means that none of the layers of the Swiss cheese approach are now presently pursued. Uh, this, you know, trying to push for a greater vaccination, but we're down to instead, as the vaccines start to fall out of the sky, you know, they begin to lose their uh, efficaciousness. And um, that's why we're at a moment now that we're now championing boosters. Mm -hmm. And so this is all within country, and I'll finish up the point here about it, that it's a total failure on the global level. Uh, you know, we have a lot of liberals punching down on, on Trumpists, and, you know, I understand why. I mean, yeah, not, not getting vaccinated, I get it, I, you should. But the, the willingness to punch down on them 
without actually punching up on, say, Bill Gates and uh, the pharmaceutical companies who were who were basically dominated the World Health Organization. Uh, the WHO at the beginning were going to do a model of open medicine to allow all info and and ingredients to to be used by everyone around the world to come up with solutions and to be have access to them. Gates came in, smashed that up. WHO switched to the uh, kind of the more COVAX model that uh, would be companies would promise to do help uh, vaccinate peoples around the world that has absolutely utterly failed. They've fallen back on bilateral deals between the companies and each country that can afford it. And so you have vast stretches of the world uh, and huge populations that aren't being vaccinated. So if you're really interested in making sure Trumpists get vaccinated to protect everybody else, then that should also be, you know, directed uh, at the global level because this focusing on protecting intellectual property rights first ended up meaning that uh, multiple variants get to evolve freely around the world in a way because not enough people were vaccinated. And so the new variants emerge and uh, get to you know, evolve out from underneath the vaccine coverage. So this is where, we're all, where we are. And it should have been a race between the vaccines and getting it, you know, jabbing everybody around the world uh, to try to drive the virus down below its, its uh, rate of uh, reproduction um and uh, but it turned into a different race it's a race now between uh the vaccines and the boosters we come up for those who can afford them against the virus evolving around under uh from out from underneath them and they're two races but they're very different from each other one is more dedicated to protecting uh pharmaceutical profits and the other would have basically uh, more than likely had a better chance of of actually driving the uh COVID-19 uh, um, to extinction, or at mm-hmm. least to extirpation. Mm-hmm. Well, this just speaks to a contradiction, and I want to ask you about this, because as you're talking about the efficacy of the vaccine declines over time because the virus mutates, that's why we're seeing variants like Delta became the dominant variant in the United States in pr- pretty short amount of time, um, and we should expect if not already, but start to see more different variants that emerge that'll be able to, like you said, be able to evolve to the point where they, you know, people who have been vaccinated like myself or like you, where we're not necessarily safe, you know, and that even with boosters, that's potential uh, to get around that is it just goes up. So, and I also want to speak to one other thing in this thing that you mentioned in one of your pieces as well. Um, the myopic quality or the myopia of, living in the United States where it feels like I actually was a little sickened by this back during the summer of this year where they're like, okay, vaccine summer's here. Everybody can go back to, you know, the CDC reverse the mask recommendation and the whole thing. And I just felt like this was just the American exceptionalism on display because we had access to vaccines and the majority of the world seemed to not have access. And like you mentioned with Bill Gates and uh, just the, the prioritization of intellectual property over getting this out to everybody in every country. Uh, now, what is it? What is the percentage of, I remember it was, it was a statistic you had in one of your pieces about Africa. It's like 2% of the African population are vaccinated, something mm-hmm. like that. 
out and then uh, briefly uh, 80% of the 5.5 billion vaccinations that had happened at the time um, were in the, in the global north. Mm-hmm. So it's like Africa and, and the rest of the global south is very little covered. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not new. I mean, this is the legacy of colonialism. I mean, this is the legacy of global capitalism, right? So I guess my, I want to just put this out there and see what you think about it, but it just seems to me like right now we're dealing with all kinds of issues with the pandemic that I think that people even who were beginning to do something about the pandemic in some systemic way could not have anticipated. Like we're seeing supply chain issues. We're seeing, you know, all this, you know, so-called labor shortages that are occurring, uh, you know, massive uh, labor actions are happening across the United States. We're seeing all of these social political ramifications of this, this pandemic still playing out. And you would think that if the capitalist system and those that are benefiting the most from it wanted to keep things going, that they would at least institute something to make sure that their workers at least could be able to continue to work. And it seems that not, none of that is happening. So like if, if you could speak, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've written about this or, or if it articulated this in some way, but just speaking to that contradiction of capitalism where it's like, it's, it's so short-sighted in its, in its desire to, uh, to attain profits for the capitalists, but it seems unable to deal with long-term issues in order to make sure the system continues to function in any sort of way at all. Could you speak to that a bit? I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Something that I've well, thought about over the past couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is uh, often, there's always, uh, you know, of the two business parties here in the U.S., the Democrats have routinely played the role of um, saving capitalism from itself, offering social programs and, um, and uh, you know, the kind of Keynesian kind of interventions to make sure that, um, you know, the capitalism doesn't fall under its own weight. But, you know, a lot of that, uh, you know, mid-century stuff was under, uh, if we go back to our cycle of accumulation at a time in which um, they were turning uh, money into capital and the infrastructure mattered. And if you're on the other side of that, then it's a free-for-all. It's a rush for the last of the money. It's a rush for um, basically um, privatizing the public commons that are, that are still around. And... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, capitalism and the American version of it has n- never played nice. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. massacring uh, Native Americans and slaving Black people for, you know, sure. for a long time or hundreds of years, uh, you know, had, you know, it very much involves um, a hierarchy of what accounts for a human being that is still held over it to some extent now. I mean, if you, you know, during the early days of the outbreak, the black and brown people were marched to work and, um, mm-hmm. you know, the meatpacking plants are the most uh, obvious or an obvious egregious example of that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, there is the hideous irony of uh, a lot of the agribusiness pretending nothing was wrong. And therefore that's why the Latino workforce needed to get back on the line. And in fact, increase the speed of the line, which forced the workers to cluster more together to increase the rate of infection, which we now have learned in the last week killed three times more uh, meat packers than were than was reported. So the the irony here is that, and the one time at the one time the agribus pretended that that wasn't happening, 
And now when the vaccine came up, they tried to jump in front of the line, including in front of some of the uh, health workers to get their people vaccinated. So there's two things going on there, right? The, the willingness to, um, you know, sacrifice people. I mean, it's not just in, in, in the, uh, you know, the, the battlefields of, of Europe or any, or Vietnam or anything where you sacrifice working people for an empire, you know, it's, it's in the, you know, the, on the job, uh, you know, working people to death, getting rid of unions to, you know, uh, all this, it means that people are to be sacrificed and uh, mm -hmm. some over others. So, you know, I think what you're getting at is, does this sacrifice now lead to the collapse of the system? And mm -hmm. do you, does it mean uh, they're willing to intervene in a way to keep it going? Well, ostensibly, that was what, um, you know, electing Biden was supposed to represent. And I think they're finding that it, it's not merely a matter of, um, you know, that both parties are, are constrained by their service to the, the very people that are paying for these, um, these political campaigns. So, you know, the, the sociopathy, I mean, the, what you're getting at here, and I repeatedly use that word, is the sociopathy at the heart of the system in the terms of, uh, you know, the willingness to... Um, you know, uh, there's the uh, the line that Zizek stole from H. Bruce Franklin, which is the you know it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? Because mm -hmm. they're so focused on the willingness to sacrifice even the very planet in order to keep that system going. I mean, that's just like total sociopathy, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter how you know brilliant and bright and and uh, diplomatic and you know. And it's very good at the, you know, uh, sharing or anything like that. I mean, in, in the end, you know, people who are, are, you know, placed in a position of great power and, and by virtue of their access to billions that, uh, you know, that was made by working people in reality, willingness and ability to privatize that, uh, you know, in the end, um, the failure of vision uh, may more go hand in hand with the kind of uh, the phantom of an empire that is in decline. Um, so it's never really about whether anybody knows what's going on. It's not whether certainly that I knew some of this might have been going on didn't affect too much how things played out. Mm -hmm. But the same goes for, um, you know, anybody like uh, any of the. Um, you know, multimillionaires or billionaires who have a more philanthropo uh, philanthropic instinct to try to save things. It doesn't mean that they know what's going on. They have the means and, and to intervene in an, uh, what is uh, an avalanche. And um, uh, the political class has largely degraded in its capacity to do this because that's what the political class political class was supposed to do it's supposed to say no to billionaires so that the system persists and it can't do that anymore mm -hmm. so you know we have the kind of id ego thing going on in which the uh you know the fanciful instincts of uh the jeff bezos become you know first and foremost at the expense of the entirety of the of the, the country mm -hmm. and you know in the end bunkering down isn't going to do it uh, in the end, there's no escape into space. Uh, in the end, you have uh, a lot of the rich buying up the farmland here, but that's not going to be enough. I mean, you have, uh, you know, at some point, um, 
you know, you you rapidly uh, degenerate into anything from, you know, the collapse of the nation state to civil war. And um, uh, unfortunately, you know, wars don't mean that people stop making a, a lot of money. So capitalists also have a very, you know, blasé and on uh, thought about, you know, whether fascism comes or civil war, they, uh, they can continue to make a whole lot of money. I mean, think about all the billionaires who've made so much money during this pandemic, uh, you know, in which almost, uh, you know, 750,000 Americans were killed than they did before the, the uh, pandemic. So this has been good for business. Um, so, you know, I think it's the, the, I don't see the contradiction if only because uh, they have very much proved themselves willing to put many uh, millions of people into body bags um, along the way. Um, every new crisis becomes somewhat of an opportunity and it repeatedly comes up in agribusiness. That's a good example. When the influenzas emerge out of their life, their livestock and poultry, if it spills over into smallholders, then that becomes the reason why we need more so-called biosecurity, which means, uh, you know, putting all livestock and poultry in sheds that smallholders may not want to do. And they can't afford all the new expectations uh, under new regulations to protect us from uh, outbreaks that actually first emerge in these industrial farms. So every crisis be- is turned around and used as a bludgeon uh, to further produce the very system that caused that crisis. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, what, I mean, okay. So there, there's, so I see with your work, I see two things. I see, well, more than that, of course, but as far as when we think about the future and projecting into the future, I mean, you're providing, you're not just saying like, the reasons as to why all these things are happening. You also give reasons or you give paths forward as far as how to, like, what do people do to make sure that this type of these epidemics and, and pandemics don't ever emerge again? You know, what would a healthy relationship with our food production look like, right? And I mean, human beings have been able to have a healthy relationship with food for a long time. And we've had various systems, the one that we're currently embedded in within right now, that obviously is very unhealthy for us as human beings and also for more than human life and for the earth. I mean, it's just really obvious. So you obviously have that path forward. So before we get to that, I just want to... I want to kind of continue on this bleak path that we've been going down here and then we'll turn to something maybe a little bit more like what, what can be done. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, almost in passing, um, we're now in, I, I think we're like in the age of plagues. We're like the age of, of pandemics. It's like if COVID has a one to 2% fatality rate, I can't, it's hard. It's not that hard for me to imagine that something else could emerge that could be up in the higher percentages of fatality, mortality rate. Right? Yeah. Do you sense that that's like very realistic? That, in a way, that that's kind of what you're expecting based on the trends. I mean, what do you? What I guess as far as the future of pandemics or epidemics go, um, what are you maybe worried about, or what do you anticipate could or would happen? Yeah, so this, this, you, we really are on the Doctor Doom uh, trail here. So uh, we are. We'll, yeah, we'll, but I, I would very much like to circle back to 
your point about lay it out because um, yeah, I think what I do is if I have an instinct in that the, the terrible direction, it's only because um, you know I really want people to kind of unplug out of the uh, premises of empire that uh, pats us on our head and says everything's going to be all right. And I mean, generally speaking, I think that um, humanity has a capacity to think through the problem and get to where we need to go to, to uh, right things in a, in a good direction. We are, are in a terrible spot, though, however, and we have to be real about it and we have to be open about it. And we have to you know, have a conversation like adults to work through what the nature of the problem is and uh, those who are responsible for providing answers or even telling us what the questions are, are fully embroiled in the system that brought about the damage. So, you know, I've spoken ill of, of one of the liberal heroes, Anthony Fauci. I've spoken ill of, um, you know, some of the other uh, players involved who, despite their brilliance, are also in, um, in, involved in, in keeping the system going. And I, I've been very adamant about it. I've you know, if you want the details, you can find them in uh, Dead Epidemiologists, uh, my latest book about it. And But I, I, I will say uh, that it is incredibly important to, to think, to unplug us out of our the ideological machine and to think through more about what does it mean to be in a, a people who stand up on their feet and, and not only make choices, meaning... Uh, the empire will provide you choices to choose from, perhaps, but to make decisions, meaning you think through what the nature of the problem is and how do we together work and maneuver our way out of this um, and out from underneath uh, the apologist who brought the problem upon us. So that's why I get heavily into the doom stuff, because, uh, you know, the the notion I think you brought up was that, you know, everything's going to be all right from what we hear or uh, and, and it is very important to uh, unplug out of that to really get at the um, trap that was sprung upon us, um, and uh, and to we really have to underscore what that trap involves and what was the trap. Now, I and mean, you got to it right. The age of pandemics, you know, obviously climate change is mixed in there as well. Sure. Uh, and these are what the philosophers call hyper objects, meaning they're problems that are everywhere all at once. And, um, you know, it used to be the 500 years of capitalism basically concentrated all the damage of capitalism to the global south around the equator. So millions of black and brown people were killed every year. But that was the damage. And, uh, you know, we ended up with 20% of the world's population using 80% of the world's resources that continues mm -hmm. today. But the damage is so extensive now, and they, they've smashed the, uh, the regenerative biology of the system, as well as the, the social aspects of the system, the, you know, social commons upon which we all depend, that now the damage is everywhere all at once. That's what climate change is. That is what a pandemic is. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, we managed... I mean, there are people here in the global north, obviously, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, South Chicago or, or South Los Angeles or anywhere, South Bronx, who are a, a global south unto themselves uh, and that they are treated terribly within the global north system. But for the most part, at the global level, all that damage was directed um, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for once, you know, we're starting to have our hand on the stove that, you know, we, we lit. Um, and feeling the burn and 
acting surprised, but you know, if you engage in a uh, capitalist system that is so divorced from the ecology upon which it depends, then that damage was utterly ine- inevitable. Mm-hmm. And um, and the uh, pathogens are are a natural consequence of that of that damage. And so, um, you know, oh, since the turn of the century, we had a whole bunch of n- new pathogens. I mean, the the rate of new disease emergences has been clocked in as being uh, increasing. The, the tax of, of pathogens is increasing, and um, you know a lot of them are RNA viruses, but they're not all, and they're somewhat quite different from each other, which speaks to the scope of damage that we've uh, um, followed up in. So you know we've got the the avian influenzas, the swine influenzas. We have SARS one in two thousand two, MERS in twenty twelve. Uh, SARS-2, COVID-19 in 2019. So that's like uh, three deadly coronaviruses in only 18 years. And, um, uh, you know, the one, 2% that you, you, you know, we've quoted here, it's, it doesn't mean it's not at all. You know, you're right. It could be uh, clocking in at, what, what do we do with the 10% or, you know, Ebola was clocking in at 90% at, at one point. And you know, wiping out uh, whole villages in sub-Saharan Africa. So Ebola, of course, but you had the one in 2013 that emerged genetically is very similar to the other Ebolas. But how did it go to infecting 35,000 people and killing 11,000 people? How did it spread across three countries and then almost make it again on a couple planes or two, right? So all these previously marginalized pathogens are finding uh, new outlets by which they can spill over out of uh, you know, immediately, you know, you know a deforestation uh, that has driven by multinational agribusiness logging or, or mining and get on because of the uh, network of travel and trade that's developed under neoliberal capitalism can find itself on the other side of the world in a matter of weeks. And what that means is basically you're selecting for the deadliest pathogens because a pathogen that... Um, is able to continue to access susceptible humans is one that you select for deadliness. If you're a virus in a host and you kill your host too fast, before the next host comes along, you basically cut off your chain of transmission. So for the most part, you tend to, those strains that don't evolve deadliness are the ones that are selected for. But if you know the next susceptible is coming along, then it selects for deadliness because you can get to your, uh, replication threshold and get into the next spot as soon as possible, you'll beat out the other strains. And because of the way uh, we've been able to move in a direction of interconnecting uh, one side of the planet to the other, both for our livestock and for, you know, just the human race overall, uh, something that might emerge uh, in, in coronavirus that emerges out South uh, Central China or Laos or whatever they're, they're looking at now, uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, makes its way to, you know, in a matter of a couple of years, uh, circulates among uh, the, you know, Chinese um, workers or, uh, and finally makes its way to Wuhan and then gets on a plane and gets, you know, sprints around the world. And um, so, yeah, I mean, this is, this is going to be, it's not going to be another hundred years, you know, between a really terrible outbreak, say 1918, um, influenza and then uh, 2019 uh, coronavirus. I mean, every, everybody, and doesn't, not, you know, I'm gonna talk about everybody, not, not just my, all ages of whatever character, you know, whether they're 
you know, part of the Imperial project or not, knows that this is just the beginning of this. So we're going to see all sorts of different types of new pathogens emerge. When I mean, when you do deforestation, you, you destroy a lot of the host species there. And so the the, the pathogens that there uh, are reservoirs for, you know, they die out too. So sometimes a lot of these host species actually do much better in, in this new context. Mm-hmm. So you have like geese, when their wetlands are destroyed on the Gulf of Mexico, they migrate toward farms that are growing grain as far north as here in Minnesota. And so their populations explode inside, in size, and they're able to have a much a greater interface with the local um, poultry that are being grown. So the spillover rate increases. Bats also do quite, some bats do better uh, under deforestation. So then all of a sudden they can make it to the monoculture plantations. It's a oil palm and then do very well. There aren't any competitors, aren't any um, uh, predators. There's a lot of space to migrate or fly from, you know, the um, roosting sites and their foraging sites. So in other words, the deforestation can allow some of these host species to do well, to increase the spillover rate and allow uh, pathogens to make their way out beyond merely some sub-Saharan village. And uh, so that, that's all over the place. It's not just China. It's not just Africa. It explains in part uh, what the emergence of swine flu H1N1 in 2009. Um, some of these viruses are emerging right deep from the, the local forests that are being cut into. Some of them are more toward the, the local regional capitals, like the avian influenzas that are on the factory farms. So there's a circuit of production there that goes from the local city to the deep forest, and v- pathogens are emerging all along the way in that circuit. And it's, whether it's in sub-Saharan Africa or China or the Middle East or, or in, in Mexico or the U.S., and that system is hand in glove with a capitalist system that, you know, any damage uh, that it causes, if it destroys a local area by what's called a spatial fix, it moves into another area to start the process of deforestation and uh, commoditization all over again. And now that we're down to the last few forests left, it's not, doesn't select for good behavior. It's not doesn't say, you know, agribusiness and other, you know, sectors don't go, oh, you know, we just not much forest left. We have to, you know, slow down at least, right? And no, it, it's uh, under what's called the Lauderdale's paradox. It selects for the last rush for what's available. Hmm. So they're all, and you have to do it in, in, a, in a different way. This is where the, the new generation of greenwashing comes in, right? I mean, this is why the half earth uh, proposal of, you know, removing people off half the planet, so uh, are moving into cities, so to allow rewilding to happen, what you what they're doing is in effect uh, removing indigenous people and smallholders who historically have been excellent at that kind of rewilding and keeping nature going. I mean, what we know as nature was in essence an indigenous project in food forestry, mm-hmm. and so uh, getting rid of them would uh, not only, uh, you know, uh, depress our capacity to actually uh, bring back uh, what we know as nature, but it also removes the last uh, real opposition to agribusiness moving in and and using the last of those forests. So, uh, in other words, you know, if, if they're going to protect nature, it's just another plantation uh, for the larger companies. 
and or they'll just uh, wipe through the last of uh, the forestry. And so again, we're back to the sociopathic problem of, um, you know, doing what's best for quarterly earnings at the expense of the, the very fate of our species. So that, that is a truly dark place we ended up. But this is, uh, yeah. this is the, the trajectory that we're on and, and being very clear about uh, what that trajectory is and is important because it really emphasizes the need to unplug out of the presumptions of, of a you know, capitalist system, whether it's a conservative version or the liberal version or the fascistic version, and to move in a direction where some sort of eco-socialism by which uh, the well-being of the people on the planet is integrated with the well-being of, uh, of the ecology upon which we all, we all depend on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great part of what I discuss on the podcast is while I do focus on the things you just discussed, which is like, this is where we're at. I think we have to have a very real look at like, what are the, I mean, this is what it is. I don't know what else to say to people, except this is what it is. And I'm sorry. Is it the, is it the trends? I I don't know how to say it any other way. Um, But that being said, it doesn't mean that people can't make those decisions as you just described earlier. Like there's, there's right. a very narrow parameters in which empire wishes to impose our ability to make decisions or to make choices. And then there's actual ability to think outside of that and to uh, recognize what needs to be done. And it does require collective action. And it seems like, I guess I'll ask you this and, and, you know, something you talk a lot about, not only in dealing with uh, the pandemic right now. So we were talking about vaccines. We're talking about the Swiss cheese model, as you just described right. That's just a public health thing, right? So we can mm-hmm. see all the different layers that need to be implemented to just push out the, the the virus and make sure that it's not replicating. But it seems to me that the smart, a, a truly like regenerative or or non sociopathic way, a pro social way of looking at this uh, about this pandemic would be like, okay, what what can we do beyond just thinking about a uh, through a pharmacological or epidemiological lens is like, what can be done to make sure that this never happens again? So what are the real roots? And you've talked about that already. Yeah. So if, I don't know if there was some mass movement, I don't want to, because people always want to do this thing. Like if I was the president, I would do this. I'm like, let's not do that. Let's do it. If there was a mass movement that had a set of goals in place, um, what would those goals be in order to make sure that we, uh, yeah, really, you know, build that capacity towards regener- regeneration uh, when it comes to food production and just the ability to live on the earth where we're not producing horrific epidemics and pandemics and other hor- horrific conditions for people. You know, what would that look like to you? Yeah, well, the beautiful thing is, is that we don't have to do this from scratch. There are movements uh, underway and uh, not just here in the States, but more uh, predominantly in the global south. There's uh, La Via Campesina, which is the global peasant organization very much calling for these things. And, um, you know, and I think it really is about us here in the global North, really uh, to look to the global South for leadership, um, which is uh, totally against our instincts, even uh, those who are uh, in the opposition here in the global North. uh, And we really have to kind of unplug uh, out of that notion that uh, we know what's best and 
I think, uh, you know, the agroecologies and regenerative agricultures that would uh, heal some of this, and we'll get into some details in a second here, mm-hmm. uh, are being, have been practiced for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, in the face of a capitalist system that uh, wanted to turn um, every plant into a widget. And so there are peoples uh, around the world who have the, you know, the experience in how community life can be organized around these kind of practices by which the social and the ecology are integrated in a way that we can have our eye on the kind of Native American vision of the seven generations of like, when you do engage in activity on this planet, what is it, what is it, its impact on those seven generations from us? And uh, we don't do that at all, not even on the left. And, and this is, uh, you know, not to idealize anything or put anybody in a pedestal or, or appropriate anything from anybody, but uh, clearly uh, there are peoples around the world who have uh, been able to uh, keep the spirit of, of the, the, the human relationship with ecology that, um, uh, that uh, allows peoples to continue to live on what is a beautiful place. I mean, the, the fact that we are on a planet and are able to you know, walk around without a spacesuit is extraordinary lucky and beautiful thing. Mm. The fact that four billion years of evolution, you know, across many multiple taxa, some here, some no longer, uh, allow us to have our air packs built into our chest and yeah. to be able to walk around like that is quite amazing and beautiful. And we're not going to be able to go anywhere else for that. However much we would like look through the telescopes, look at the stars, all that stuff. I mean, this is it. And it's wonderful. It's a good place to be. So yeah. the desire to, you know, to, you know, return back to Earth as it were. Because in my, in my view, the when Elon Musk put that car into space, mm-hmm. it's really symbolic of what capitalism is about. It's left the planet. It's just a divide. Mm-hmm. It's produced these what are called metabolic rifts between ecology and economy in such a way that the capitalist class has left the planet and uh, are, and we need to return. And um, so that that is uh, in the impulse here. That is the desire. There's a com- as the wonderful thing is that there are millions of people on this planet who understand this. So you're not. We're not alone in this. This might be a revelation to some of us now. That's okay. We, we could be late to the party, but we have to, you know, participate and find people who have been here for thousands of years who understand this in a profound way. I'm not asking anybody to go become a Native American. Don't do that. That's yeah. That's yeah. you are. I mean, that's not what that's that is not what this is about. It's about uh, building alliances, listening and learning. It's about uh, you know building uh, solidarity, the kind of global solidarity that's necessary to push back against capitalist global, globalization. And so um, yeah. you know, but the 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 pr- practical stuff is is you know pretty much uh, out there it's well understood i mean if if yeah, we yeah. think that you know piling in 250,000 uh you know egg layers in the same barn they're all genetically the same selects for the most virulent pathogens because of all that food for flu uh then we shouldn't do that anymore so we do things like return agriculture from being an industrial economy back to a natural economy right depends on healthy soils Healthy water it depends on the, the passing of the seasons. Um, you don't put egg, egg layers spitting out eggs every day for a year before they croak, right? You do. Yeah. There are times of seasons in which there are eggs more than others. You know, it's like um, you. 
So in terms of the stopping pathogens from emerging, uh, reintroduce agrobiodiversity uh, at the farm level and across the, at the landscape level. You build in these kind of immune fire breaks in a way that no single pathogen can, can solve all those immune systems because they're very different from each other. So you have different types of animals, different types of varieties within uh, animal species. Uh, you allow animals to breed on site because they don't do that now. All the um, breeding is done offshore for kind of morphometric characteristics like fast growth and bigger breasts, say in poultry. So when there's an outbreak here and there's some, a few birds survive that, maybe some quirk in their immune system, maybe you would think that you would use those as the progenitors of the next generation. Well, they don't do that because there's no breeding at the farm. Mm. All, you know, they ship in the, the, the uh, day olds uh, on the season, right? They don't, there's no breeding there. Mm. Uh, but smallholders, of course, their animals breed on site. So all the, much of what smallholders are doing are already involved in the direction of protecting us from selecting for pathogens that we, would emerge to kill a billion people. So you allow animals to breed on site to, to track, use natural selection as an ecosystem service that allows for free, that allows you to track uh, circulating pathogens that are about. And there's always gonna be pathogens, there's always gonna be deadly ones. It's always gonna be ones that emerge and do some damage, but not one in all likelihood you know, we're at a new pace here in part because we're turning the planet into a, a, a globe of, of, you know, cities of pigs and, and poultry around the world. It's not just in industrial countries anymore. It's now entering in, in the, what's so-called developing countries. Yeah. And, you know, we've got 23 billion uh, chickens now. I mean, it's like uh, you're, you're entering a world in which uh, it's all food for all these pathogens, and the ones that can make it into the barn are going to be the ones that prosper, do well, and they'll likely spill over and solve the immune system. So we want to reintroduce the agrobiodiversity at multiple scales. That also involves the need for farmer autonomy. Uh, don't make decisions in the agribusiness headquarters, uh, you know, on the other side of the planet. Uh, farmers and rural communities are more likely to make decisions that are more not, you know, not always, but for the most part, likely to make decisions in the direction of protecting local landscapes because they live there and they can engage in the spatial fix that we talked about. They can't just damage their community and leave. Uh, although that is, does happen if they are put in the position of having to, you know, uh, sell to an end buyer who says you have to grow your animals this way or we're not buying. So this is why half of Iowa's rivers are entirely polluted and they're like, you know, multiple um, watersheds, you know, maybe have three watersheds that host 350,000 people in Northwest Western Iowa that are now presently, you know, disposed and, you know, open sewage from livestock and, and, and poultry of the equivalent of Mexico City, New York and Tokyo combined oh. out in the open waterway. I mean, it's disgusting and uh, totally, Unlivable. I mean, the the dead zone in Gulf of Mexico is actually up up along the Mississippi River in each in each of these U.S. states. So we're getting back to that that what you brought up about what where's the logic of allowing you to destroy your own system? That's where we're at. We're yeah, willing yeah. to you know frack and and uh, you know dump uh, manure lagoons in a way that people can't swim or drink the water there. And this really speaks to what uh, agribusiness and a lot of the other industrial sectors think of the American people. Uh, there's much to be sacrificed as anybody else along the equator. 
And so this is why we've reached at the moment of global solidarity, where those in Iowa have a lot more in common with the people of uh, Liberia and with, uh, that are also subjected to agribusiness control. And that's hard for, that's why the impetus for the divide and conquer and the rise of fascism to Nasser to continue the divide and conquer of peoples who have a lot more in common and would do much better to push back against those who rule uh, than, than to go at each other merely because of the color of our skin. Yeah. You know, Rob, there's like so many threads to follow with you. So I don't want to take up like your entire day because I already have like, there's like several other questions I would like to get to, but maybe, I don't know. I don't know if I want to take too much more of your time. I just feel like you've already shared so much with, with me and the listeners. Um, and there's really just so much to get at. I mean, I have questions about vaccines. I have questions about some of the anti-vax stuff. Uh, (laughs) there's like a lot of layers to this. So I, I just really want to respect the amount of time that you've already given to me. Um, but I really think that the amount of the, the focus that we've put on, on the ecology of this and how, um, these type of pathogens can emerge and global, uh, capitalism and all the contradictions that you were able to elaborate on, elaborate on very well, I think really gives us a good picture of, you know, like really where we're at and what comes next on, you know, there's like this decision that we have to collectively make on where we're going to go. Of course, it's, it's really a collection of decisions that we're all going to have to make, but nonetheless, you know, we're being kind of pulled in different directions here. And, um, and so I think I always felt like when COVID emerged, the real feeling, and it was a visceral feeling was Mm. that it was like a signal, like it was this indication, like a tap on the shoulder, a little more than that, maybe a push, but like, you know, this is what's happening and more of this is going to be coming down the pipeline if things don't change. And there's numerous signals that have been popping up over the past however many decades or more. Um, and so I, yeah, I do think that the emergence of pandemics like we're seeing now with COVID is, is just a big signal. And I think that what you pointed to in this interview really, really fleshes out like the details of that, you know? So I really do thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, I will ask one last thing, which is I I mentioned your Patreon uh, where people can read. I I just want to say, I think you mentioned this maybe before the interview even started, but that your recent pieces on Patreon, you said they're a little all over the place. And I I really liked how you wrote it, to be quite honest with you, because it almost felt like a bit of a sketchbook, if I could Mm -hmm. say it that way. Um, They were connected. Mm-hmm. So that it wasn't it wasn't too all over the place, but it definitely felt like you were connecting a lot of different threads together. That was really fascinating for me to read. So I would I would ask, are you publishing this work anywhere else, or are these just going to be on your Patreon page? Well, they're going to be on the Patreon page for now. I am uh, signed up to do another COVID book, so uh, they'll probably okay. be part of that. Um, okay. But you know, the connect it to how we you know began or discussing Biden and such, although I understood the instinctively and the the notion of Biden would in some ways be a continuation of what the U.S. failed to do. Mm-hmm. To see that in real time was uh, still very much a shock. And so yeah. I spent a lot of time trying to write my way out of out of that. And so it's a they're long pieces, but yeah. Um, because the failure isn't merely a matter of failure of administration or policy. 
these are deeper failures embedded into the kind of um, cultural instincts that are, you know, uh, honed by uh, the political economy of our of our time and place uh, presently. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's how and why I got into that. And I appreciate your kind words about the pieces and uh, very much uh, invite people if they want to uh, uh, join in. Like uh, you brought up, it's uh, you can join in as, as low as a dollar a month. And, uh, um, you know, this... Uh, uh, work will continue and um, it supports the stuff that we're doing at the um, Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps. And I should add one more thing is we are also at uh, put together what's called Pandemic Research for the People or mm-hmm. PrEP. And uh, on prep, uh, prepthepeople.net, you can see a variety of dispatches uh, of, of people, scientists and everyday people together work to write up on a variety of topics around uh, COVID-19, both in urban and rural settings and and worldwide. So uh, I wanna thank you very much for having me. I appreciate uh, the invitation here. I think we had a really good conversation and uh, I hope we get a chance to talk again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Rob. Hey everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at LastBornPodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And if you support my work there, you will gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. Um, You will find other exclusive content there as well. So to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast, however you choose to do that, thank you very, very much. If you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast, you can do that through two means. You can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long. Please let me know what your intention is with the message so that I can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast. If you would like to also just go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com, you'll find a link at the top of the page. That'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.